what I'd like to do is give you something from my study Bible. You know that I use the uh, JPS uh, study Bible. And so at the beginning of every book, there's this you know, huge introduction to the book. Um, all kinds of different perspectives on the book, um, archaeological, textual, um, cultural, you know, in its setting, just, you know, so that whoever's, you know, taking a scholarly approach to this can really understand the book in its entirety and overview before entering into the, the commentary on every single verse. So I'm going to give you this, and I want you to just, whatever it is you bring to Torah study with you normally, just keep this in there. For the next little bit, we're going to be in the book of Numbers. And so just go ahead and bring this with you. Um, if you have a notebook, if you, you know, whatever you study from or with, put it in your purse. <clears throat> Shrink it and put it in your wallet. In your iPhone. In your iPhone. Laminate it. Scan it and put it in your iPhone. There you go. Um, not that you have to, but I just I want to encourage us to, like, keep in mind the overview of the book as we study the book, right? It's easy to just kind of go, why is this material here? Who cares? Why, you know, why? So what I want to show you is, especially in the book of Numbers, what we don't often appreciate is the structure that the redactor, that the editor had in mind when editing the book, right? So we're, we're used to seeing this. Um, in really tiny pieces. It's like, why is this business of the tabernacle right after this Nadav and Avihu business? And then there's the blah, blah, blah. And then there's a description of the leprosy. And then there, like, what, what goes on? This is what goes on. There is actually a structure. It is a structure that is what we call chiastic. So in uh, Greek, this letter, right? Um, we look at a chiastic structure, meaning you know, it's going to go this, this way or this way, right? So the bottom triangle is what we're looking at here. That there's a parallel between the edges of the X, yeah? So that when we look at chapter, um, when we look at this side of the structure, we get the the from slavery angle, and on this side, towards freedom, right? And then what happens in the very center of this, and this is from Genesis to uh, the Joshua, that whole history, by the way. This is not just the book of Numbers. Um, so in the very center is the giving of Torah at Mount Sinai, the theophany at Sinai, right? You have Genesis over here. And you have the Deuteronomic history over here. We tend to think of these books as stopping at Deuteronomy, but it doesn't. It stops at jo you know, with the whole story of Joshua and the conquering of the land. So the five books stops, but not the overall story that ends with the conquest. So, so this goes all the way through Joshua 24, the Deuteronomic history. The same, um, same kind of vision uh, of the history runs through Joshua 24. All right, so if that's true, then we start to understand how the material is where it is. So we have the law of Shabbat. Look at by theophany. We're going to move out. So look in the center. You see theophany? You see Mount Sinai? The giving of Torah? If you look on the left, we get Shabbat as the law 
and the covenant is broken. The covenant of Shabbat is broken. Look to the right. You get, again, a repetition of the Shabbat law with a story about the covenant being renewed. How is the covenant renewed? Moshe goes back up after breaking the first set. God says, all right, I'll forgive them after the plague, yada, 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 yada. Right? So we don't often think of things on either side of that being related to each other. We tend to think in the West in a very linear fashion, don't we? We think it progresses, that you start at point A and you progress to point B. That is not the ancient mind. The ancient mind thought either in cycles, cyclically, right? Think pagan, you wanna keep the cycles going. That was the big thing of pagan ritual. Keep the cycle going. Keep it happening as it's supposed to. Reinforce blessing for you within that system of spring and renewal and rebirth by giving thanks for the antelope, right? And offering them back to the antelope god, right? So the cycle has to keep going and you want it to go well for you in that cycle. That is not, so that is one way, that, but that's not how a lot of the ancient Near Eastern and, and ancient Israelite literature is, is conceived. A lot of it is this chiastic structure. Okay, so there's a center point, and then it's A, A, B, B, C, C, D, D, E, E. That is a very different way of conceiving literature and ideas and the development of ideas, but it is orderly for them. So it seems kind of chaotic for us as we make our linear way through these texts, because that's not how they understood it in a linear fashion, okay? So we're kind of challenged, the way we study, the way we read, the way we're taught to think, we're challenged to enter sometimes the beauty and complicated, sophisticated um, layout of, of these texts. Did so, you say, Rabbi, that there was another half to this? Uh, you said an, an X. This is an inverted D. Right. Is there another half to this? So, yeah, so sometimes the, you know, there's this part and this part. Well, that's so, the part we're looking at. This yeah, part. we're looking at this part. And there is another... Uh, um, not for these texts. But, but often, often they'll lay it out like this, you know, and you can see A, A, B, B, C, C, and then it goes the other way. Who's they? Scholars who are studying the structure of the books, Torah? of the Torah, uh -huh. or of a book, or of a passage. Oh, often a hunk of Torah is this. And until you see it laid out like that, you don't get it. I'd love for you to bring in. That would be so interesting. A chiastic yeah. text? Yeah. Okay. But isn't that representative of life anyway? Just that Jackie Israel, is... that sounded very deep. Why don't you share <laughs> what you meant by that? Well, life is mountains and valleys. It's cycles. Um, I'm going through my own personal cycle where my oldest son went to college, and I'm like being reborn in my parenting and my life, and... Um, I'm just experiencing a lot of cycles, and I think life is mountains and valleys and cycles. And I think and it's not linear necessarily. I think it's a regenerating of a lot of things over and over again. And I think this is where the modern reader suffers. This is where modern thinking suffers. Mm -hmm. It's a weakness of modern or contemporary thought, right? Is our tendency to think linearly in the West. Mm -hmm. in 2013.
Um, it, it, that's a, there is a richness that is lost when we abandon the understanding of cycles. So one, one that I find really, really powerful um, is that uh, in studying native peoples, you know, in northern Minnesota, there's the Ojibwe people, and you know, so it's very much influenced by native thinking. Um, the idea of time, you know, we tend to think of time as starting here and then going that way, and it like your life starts and then it progresses and it ends. And in native thinking, as soon as you reach puberty, your circle of time closes, and every expression of time past there is a widening of the circle. Now, just that thought, just that reframe was existentially of such relief to me, right? Because there's this sense, if we think linearly, that I'm reaching the end. I'm closer every day to the end, right? It's all ending. And the older we get, the more a sense, you know, that we're closer to the end than the beginning. What if we understood time you know, as a circle, and our circle fills out. Meaning then, knowledge base gets everything, time. Yeah. Our time, the more we live past 13, because otherwise it's a broken right. circle, right? It, it, no one's supposed to die before then. But, it, but if you reach puberty, and meaning then adulthood, that, you know, that every year or every minute, every hour, your, your experience, your circle of time widens. I feel such a lowering of my own existential anxiety just in that shift that I think is, is across the board what, what I'm trying to say is yes. I think lifetime, all of it is a cycle. Um, pits and valleys and mountains and all of that, a wave if you, if you like. Um, and we, we don't do a very good job of really holding that necessarily in our Western but I, I think it's ironic, though, that that the way you said that it is a say a weakness of our modern point of view to think linearly, when in fact historians of civilizations have laid at the doorstep of the Hebrew civilization the notion of linear time, that the Hebrews were the first ones, at least in the in the opinion of, of Spengler and others, who sort of like did like global historiography, that they were, the, they were the first civilization to break the cyclical thinking pattern and go off in a linear direction with a, a teleological view that said that there is, a, there is an ultimate purpose to our existence, which is the perfection of the world. So I'm going to agree with you with a caveat. Uh -huh. We still had the cycles of the year. We still were an agricultural festival cycle. Right. What, what the difference is, is it went from pagan thought to Israelite thought. It still cycles with, well, with an evolution. It's with not linear. But it's linear. But it's, but it's, but it's, but it it's is progressive. It's not yes. linear. Uh, okay. Well, you can have spiraling going in a direction. That's what I'm saying. I, okay. That, yes, redemptive history is the new... Like, you know, idea as that as opposed to always being stuck correct, in the same that plane. it's moving the in a direction. That, I, uh, I yeah. see it as a double helix myself. There you go, the <laughs> double helix. Exactly right. So double helix. Yeah. But I, I also think you have we have to distinguish between a literary device, which is telling a story in a particular literary way, and what you were talking about uh, the the messianic idea, the mm -hmm. idea that that 
the world is not just repetition of the same horribleness, which was a pagan idea. Uh, to many, it's partially the idea of Indian philosophy, of Chinese philosophy, that we just keep on going around and around and around and around. The world is non-ending suffering. And Judaism was, and I think is, a religion of great hope. And the hope is that the world isn't like that, even though right. we have day and night, but that, and even though we're spinning around, as you said, that it's a corkscrew. It's moving somewhere. That's right. Yeah. That it is that there is redemptive history, right? That God punctuates history for the first time with the goal of the messianic age, um, and that we are evolving, you know, towards that. Um, what does Reconstructionism do with the messianic age? With that idea? How? Reconstructionist Judaism um, says that it is in our hands, and it is our obligation to create the messianic age. That, that is not something outside of... It's not what happens to it's us. It's not what happens to us. It's that we will create that when we live into our Jewish values and other people live into their right and true values of compassion and justice and equity and healing and transformation and all that stuff. Then we, humanity, will bring the messianic age to be. But it, it doesn't... Uh, doesn't depend on anything. The, but it doesn't accept the resurrection of the dead. A Absolutely, 100% not. Well, we don't know. <laughs> but, but we're not saying, but we're not saying yes, we believe it. We're just saying, you know, who, who knows? I certainly don't know, you know, what's next and what's after that. All right, so, um, so just to give you that as kind of a, a framing um, understanding of the Pexatuk, the six books, um, and we are at the uh, numbers, the introduction to the numbers stories um, until chapter 10, where we get into the meat of, uh, of something. All right, so I want to um, look with you a little bit at the text. We'll just look a little bit at the text, and then we're going to go to some people writing about, about the book in general. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 11. So you get a flavor of where we are. 802 in the green. 778 in Eitzchayim. Chapter 3, verse 11. 11. Somebody begin. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I hereby take the Levites from among the Israelites in place of all the firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the Israelites. The Levites shall be mine, for every firstborn is mine. At the time that I smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated every firstborn in Israel, man and beast, to myself to be mine, the Lord's. Go on. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Record the Levites by ancestral house and by clan. Record every male among them from the age of one month up. So Moses recorded them at the command of the Lord as he was bidden. These were the sons of Levi by name, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, these were the names of the sons of Gershon by clan, uh, Libni and Shimei. The sons of Korah, Kohach by clan, Amram and Ishar, Hebron and Uziel. The sons of Merari by clan, Mali and Mushi. 
Go on, just keep reading. There's nothing. To, there's not a lot to unpack here. Go on. There is. Okay. Go on. These are the clans of the Levites within their ancestral houses. To Gershon belonged the clan of the Libnites and the clan of the Shimeites. Those are the clans of the Gershonites. The recorded entries of all their males from the age of one month up as recorded came to 7,500. The clans of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle to the west. The chieftain of the ancestral house of the Gershonites was uh, Eliasaf, son of Lael. The duties of the Gershonites in the tent of meeting comprised the tabernacle, the tent, its covering, and the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting. The hangings of the enclosure, the screen for the entrance of the enclosure which surrounds the tabernacle, the cords thereof, and the altar, all the service connected with these. Okay. Um, so we're getting a couple of things um, happening here. We are getting the replacement of the firstborn by the Levites, right? So God now says, I'm taking the Levites instead of the firstborn of every family, right? So that means the firstborn originally had sacral status and sacral duties associated only with birth order, firstborn males. And why do we have pity on the band if the Levites have been substituted? Right, so, um, so it's continuing with the whole Peter Rechem business that, that every issue of the first issue of the womb belonged at some point to God, and we are redeeming the firstborn in order to use it ourselves. So it's, it's a remnant, right, of this idea of the sacral status of the firstborn. Um, this was common in Mesopotamia. It was common in the ancient Near East, um, and we have lots of documents where, it's, where they, the documents attest um, that like in adoption documents, if someone becomes the firstborn son of someone through adoption, they accept the sacral responsibilities of the firstborn, right? So we know from those adoption documents um, that this was common, uh, not just to ancient Israel. What is the relation between firstborn and first fruits? Because God they are the takes both. Same. They're, they're the same. And the first of the flock. And the first of the flock. Right, they're, they're all the same. That idea of being um, somehow sacred in that sense of set aside um, because it is the first, because it is that which has, um, in mammals' cases, opened the womb, peter rechem. Um, so, so the Levites now are going to substitute for the firstborn, um, but the rabbis maintain that there, there's still you know, a priestly flavor to the firstborn, which is how we, we have this idea of Pidyon Habim. Um, and so now that they're going to be um, taken as gods, then, then within that clan, there has to be an understanding of what their jobs are, what their duties are, and that's what we have described here. This is about porterage. This is about the sacred objects, the cult, right? All of the things that are needed by the cult in transit. But that's different from when they are parked, right? And, and it's all unpacked and they're just going about their everyday ritual and duties. Those were the Kohanim. Those were the priests that did all of that. Only the priests were allowed in there, remember? But 
the Levites carry everything. Um, and mm -hmm. they were the schleppers. That's right. So they would carry it. So this is all about their duties in transit. So if you imagine the imaginings of an ancient Israelite imagining this, because we don't know what if this actually happened, but in the Israelite imagination, imagine what would have gone into breaking camp, right? Breaking down the tabernacle and the, and the entire structure with all of its stuff and then moving 600,000 people, right? That's in their imagination as they're writing this. So it's quite complicated, right? And it, there's a lot of jobs and it better be pretty orderly, right? Um, I mean, life around here sometimes feels completely like chaos unchained. Um, I can't imagine, you know, how they are thinking about that many people and this big a structure and this complicated a, a set of routines to get this business done. Um, these are guards. Um, the guard duty was about this ancient idea of um, encroachment. So if your English text says to draw close, it's related to the stem for to draw close, but it's not a good translation. A better translation is to encroach on the sancta, right? So encroachment is seriously dangerous. Therefore, capital punishment is involved. It's that dangerous. So the same way we consider treason to be dangerous enough to punish by death in the United States, right? It's the same understanding for them, the encroachment on the sancta. It's that dangerous. Um, so the guards are charged with preventing encroachment, which means they carry out the capital punishment if they have to, right, if someone's going to encroach on the sancta. Um, and it's on them. The entire safety of the whole business is on the guards. This is not a happy job, right? We tend, so when we tend to think of you know, the Levites and the priests, what makes them so special? Ain't no special about this job. This job stunk. You were on constant, vigilant duty, and if something went wrong, right, the nuclear reaction was on you. And the contamination that happens is on you. So this was not a happy job. All right. So they're schlepping. Mickey, did you want to say something? Yeah, I have a question. Um, when you talk about recording every male from the age of one month up, is that a way of recognizing uh, when life really begins? That's where the rabbis go. Yeah. That's where the rabbis go. The rabbis say, hence, because it says from one month up, that's how we know that they're not really considered a person before one month. But likely, it meant if you survived the first 30 days, yeah. you had a fairly good shot, right? And if you made it till five, you were set. Um, but... I mean, take out war or whatever, but, um, but yeah, 30 days to really establish that the baby would likely live. Can you talk about the genealogies? Like, what, is it, In what does it mean for us? Yeah, <laughs> that there's this person and here's the names of the sons. 
The genie, whenever, whenever you see a genealogy, it is likely P. The source of genealogy is P. It's the priestly source. So the priestly source that's redacting the hexateuch is very interested in making sure we understand that they descend from and all the way back to Aaron and Moses, right? So this is very much the priestly author's agenda, is to be clear that they derive from Moses and Aaron. But as moderns, what can we take from you can name a Mushi or <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are those names used in, the, in Israel? Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. I mean, some of them are, but not the Izharites, the Hebronites, no. The Uzielites. No. I mean, Mali and Mushi. What, and, and the Kohatites, no. What, what we can, what it does for some people make interesting is, all right, so who's Uzi, you know, who are the Uzielites? They must have had an alliance with the Kohatite. You know, they, so some people really like to study these names to, to talk about the relationships between some of these clans, but you know, I mean, in terms It always of, seems strange as, as a, I guess, 21st century person, we don't think of genealogy or connection that much. We tend to think of ourselves and maybe one generation back but we don't see ourselves as part of a web of Judaism. So to well, me, this kind of ties there are a lot of people, together. There are a lot of people who are really into the genealogy of their families and things like that. Now, we may think that that's, you know, that's not how I'd like to spend my time, but that's how they like to spend it. I was just going to no. say, but, but we are Some people, people are who have been you know, displaced mm -hmm. enough that, and records lost enough mm -hmm. that I think we don't culturally have the same attachment, like, you know, I think about New Englanders, you know, mm -hmm. who trace their lineage back to, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. but, um, and there are certainly those who are still um, very involved with this sense of, you know, rabbinic dynasties, you know, and stuff like that. But it's, um, you know, so I think the longing is the same. What we learn from this particular one is of historical interest, but for me. I guess my point was, we tend to think as, as Americans that we are first individuals yeah. and second a part of a family and third a part of a genealogy and this is like a different vision right. where, where the family and the clan, I think it's hard for us, certainly hard for me to understand that, how, what that meant to them. Right, because I have built into my brain Right. You know, all men and all people are created equal, and it's the individual, and it's the rights of the individual, right. and, and that comes before family and clan. And for them, they understood the the collective people of Israel yeah, as one. the unit. Right. right. Within that, you had tribes. Within those, you had clans. Within the clans, you had families, and then you were an individual, and that didn't really mean a lot <laughs> at the same way. You certainly don't have to go back 3,000 years ago to find this practiced. Mm -hmm. it, it's practiced mm -hmm. today in lots of, including developed parts of the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Japan. <clears throat> Japan That's very much sees itself collectively. Right. Japanese people do. Right. And, uh, and, and that is certainly emphasized by the priestly author over and over and over is that, that, that connection um, to I just Chloe's. I want to about genealogy. I went to the 
on the, the Mormon temple, the big one on San Monica Boulevard, has a genealogy that's open to everyone. And I went there about two years ago because my father was the oldest of five children, and when he was born, his mother died in childbirth. And I wanted to get information on his real mother, his biological mother. And it was the most amazing thing. They have handwritten senses, and I see my father's siblings. I couldn't find information about her, but they told me if I wrote to Salt Lake City, I could get information. But what I found out was when my father was born, there, he had, there was a two-and-a-half-year-old son that I don't think anyone ever knew about. Or if they did, they, I don't think they ever talked about it. And he wasn't in the next census after my father was born, so either they gave him up for adoption, which I doubt, he probably died, and that was interesting to learn. Sure, to, to look back at the record and see what. Yeah, and then just to see the hand what's there. Senses, see your aunts and uncles. It was just uh, you don't have to go to um, ancestry.com. They do it for free there. Um, Can I just say one thing to Bert? No. I want to say, Bert, I disagree with your thinking of just like individualism and about No, I'm not in favor of that. No, I'm not saying that you're in favor, but I'm just saying, I mean, what about Yisker or um, Yartzai and naming our children after their grandparents or great-grandparents? I mean, I do think that there's a big piece of us as Americans that still honor the traditions of our ancestors and keep them relevant. And I don't disagree with you. I was just saying, in general, compared to those times, Mm -hmm. We're a lot more individual-oriented, our society, mm -hmm. than clan or... And if you look at our society in general, people talk about the breakdown of the family, et cetera, et cetera. That, that was my... But I, I, I'm not saying there's nothing. Right. I, the point I was making is it's... A, we're oriented very differently mm -hmm. from the way they were. Mm -hmm. You know, when you read that book by um, Ayan Hershey Ali, mm -hmm. uh, you know what I'm talking about. I can't remember the name of the book, but she had self-mutilation. I mean, she oh. depends from the real, the real deal, the tribes in Africa. And when you read about, and now today, she uh, actually got into politics in Holland and got elected, and now she's at a think tank, the Brookings Institute in Washington. I mean, she's a really her story is really incredible. It's amazing. Um, but she came from this real order of the, how you, when you walk along the street, it's like, hi, I'm Anne, you know, daughter of da, 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 da. It's like three sentences long, clan of this, clan. I mean, it is really, I mean, we are so far away from anything like that, mm -hmm. that, uh, I don't know what's done today in that region, but it, when you read it, you really start to understand what it is to have a place and to and be identified in every way based on your claim. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, let's look at this one that just says Parshat Bamidbar on the top. Hopefully, does everybody have a set? Parshat, I don't. Is there an extra? Yes. Oh, yes. If yes. you have a set, then you have this page. If you don't have a set, you don't have this page. Yes? Okay. I don't have this. I don't have anything. Did, did everybody take two pages? No. Two pages. Two Everyone should have two pages. One of them in a funky font. So look at the funky font page. 
This says Parsha Bamidbar. These are just my notes that I'm sharing with you because um, I like this, this way of looking at it. Somebody read Leaving the Book. Leaving the Book of Leviticus. <clears throat> Lots of instructions about the sanctuary and its rituals and duties associated with it. Beginning Book of Bamidbar equals numbers in English. Jump down to Melanie Aaron. Melanie Aaron says that we are descendants of the people who named this wait, book. Wait, wait, hmm? Melanie the Aaron quotes. Second. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, the third section. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. yeah. Melanie Aaron quotes Arnie Eisen, who writes about the book of Numbers. Welcome to the real world. It is not a sanctuary. We are leaving the book of Leviticus. We are leaving this whole description of the Mishkan. Remember all this business about the Mishkan? And the priests, and the sancta, and the menorah, and the altar, and the blood, and and we are coming into Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And Arnie Eisen says, what is that about? What is leaving the book of Leviticus and going to the book of Numbers about? Welcome to the real world. It ain't no sanctuary. We are leaving the ordered, prescribed, regular, daily, ritual practice of exactness and control for the real flippin' world, which is Bamidbar, the wilderness. It ain't no sanctuary. Go on, Susan. Eisen points out the contrast between the orderly world of Leviticus with the chaos of Bamidbar, a place without landmarks whose story is recounted in a book that also seems to lack structure. Unlike earlier books of the Torah, the storyline does not progress. Instead, the text seems to double back on itself, sometimes literally, returning the Israelites to places they had visited earlier. So we're going to get doublets throughout the book of Numbers. We'll get a rock and a hitting and a something and a water and then rock and hitting and water and punishment. Then quail and feeding and that's okay and then quail and you people complain too much and there's a plague. Right? We, we get doublets of stories that seem to double back on themselves sometimes literally. Another version of the same story in the book of Numbers. It's a little crazy-making, like it kind of meanders, and then it goes here, and then it goes there, and then doubles back. What does Melanie Aaron say? Go on, Susan. Um, she says that we are descendants of the people who named this book the book of Numbers, implying that through measuring and counting, drawing up lists and keeping records, we can create order imitating the great creator of order, God. Hence, the beginning of this book is a census, right? The, the whole Bamidbar experience begins with attempting to like make a list, count things, enumerate them, and get some kind of control. Because that is how we understand creation as a people, is God brings order out of chaos, right? And all the world was tohu vavohu, which we don't know what that is because we live after tohu vavohu um, in a linear fashion. Um, but um, so we don't know what that is, but it's pre cosmic ooze, like, you know, the cosmic soup out of which it all arises. How does it all come out? Order, separating day from night, right? So in order to, to create, to imitate God and creation, we 
have this instinct to try to make order out of chaos. Very much, I don't know about y'all, very much my instinct when it all starts to feel like it's falling away. What do we try to, you know, what do we do with our panic about wide open spaces and the chaos of, you know, the unknown? A lot of us try to make order, right? We try to, you know, get control by by ordering, <laughs> by what? Eating. Eating. <laughs> I'm, you know, shop, make shopping lists. Like, you know, like something that we can get, you know, control of. And, and so I think it's a wonderful way to look at the book of Numbers and this impulse as we move into the Bamibar, as we move into the wilderness, right? The instinct is make lists, count, order, name, quantify, clanify, right? And what we're counting is people. And we're counting people. Go on, Susan. The power and the message of this book for her is precisely the immense gap between the divine and the human. The order we can create is only partial. We can hold a vision, but we cannot hold to it. We get distracted. We become mired in, in small details and pressing problems. And our progress toward the ideal seems infinitesimal. Uh, we do not even have absolute control over our bodies. And the best of our plans are often rendered insignificant by forces beyond our control. All right. So that kind of is the reality that we live in, right? The journey into and the wandering through our meat bar leaves us changed. All right. So if you turn your paper over. So wandering itself through the mid bar has effect. I'm not going to say purpose, but has an effect, right? Read what she says next, Susan. By the end of Bamid Bar, something significant has occurred. The Israelites have coalesced into a community. Their experience is often our own. At times, our lives seem without form or direction. But when we find ourselves back where we started, we discover that we are not really the same as we were. So it feels sometimes like we're wandering without point, without purpose, and nothing's happening until we get back to somewhere we've been and realize Amy Bernstein walking into the synagogue in Duluth, Minnesota. There has been serious progress over three years. <laughs> I'm not the same. Right? I can't see in three years. I'm always feeling behind, you know, that trying to do, trying to prove, trying to grow into, trying to pretend to be, <laughs> whatever, that's all I see here. But when I go back there, I can see the progress over three years from, from who I was. And that's the power, she says, of this idea of meandering and then coming back through that story a different way is that we have changed and by the end of this book for all of their wanderings what started out as a counting of people a counting of individuals becomes a nation it starts by counting the individuals that left Egypt and ends with them being they've coalesced into a community into a people so um, Arnie Eisen then looks at uh, the Talmud at Nidarim 55a. When a person makes himself similar to the desert, Torah is given as a gift, right? So the question is, why here? Why not give Torah in Egypt? Why not give Torah at the other side of the sea? They were primed, they were ready, 
That'd be a good moment, right after the miracle of the right. What? What? And so the rabbis spend a lot of time exploring why Torah is given in the desert. Here is one response, right? Is that when we make ourselves similar to the midbar, we receive Torah. The gift of that is Torah. What, what does that mean? But midbar Rabbah says anyone who does not make him or herself open like the wilderness will not be able to acquire wisdom and Torah. There is a falling away of structure, boundaries, defenses, rigid line, right? There is something that must open up and fall away like the midbar for us to receive, really receive wisdom and Torah, right? That when we're stuck in our regular habits and our regular way of thinking and our regular minds and our chatter and our busyness, that is not the place from where wisdom comes, right? That's not to say it's not productive, but... I was going to say, isn't that true of our lives in general, where we have to come through a period of Bar or um, wilderness, so to speak, um, and we become better people because of that wilderness situation? I think that's exactly what the rabbis are saying. Yes, that there are times of wilderness, and that those for us are deeply informative and growthful times, as difficult and painful as they often are, Ruth? Yeah, I would say that in those times we find ourselves most vulnerable, and it's the vulnerability that leads to openness because you can't rely on either any known structures out there, there are none, or you can't rely on internal structures that you used earlier because they don't work. They don't serve anymore, right? That's precisely the idea of the wilderness. The structures fall away. They don't work, whether external or internal. They don't hold, right? They're temporary. By definition, in the, in the midbar, they're temporary. And that really is the wisdom. That's the learning, is that they're all temporary. We think of them as fixed and permanent, but really, the, the true wisdom is, the Torah is that they're all temporary. But and the, it's only when we're vulnerable and open that we can sometimes get that. Well, it bothers me, though, that the Israelites reverted to build the, the calf. And, uh, I mean, were they, were they open at that time? Were they willing to accept something from God? I mean, they, they did the opposite of what we would have thought they would do. So that's, first and, of all, that's early. That's early in the experience. And that's the generation that does not make it into the promised land. It is their children who will have the midbar experience of being open, right, and, and developing that into the core of their peoplehood identity, because they couldn't. That's exactly right. The, that generation that, that were slaves in Egypt couldn't do it. They, they couldn't, the old structure couldn't fall away. They, they weren't, they couldn't bust wide open enough. Um, in some ways, uh, this idea of uh, that the point of the wilderness is to make people realize that uh, structures are transient, 
is kind of, in a way, it, it's, uh, it's almost a, a Buddhist view in the sense of that everything, everything is illusion. Now, what, what, takes, the, what takes the place of, of the illusory things for the, for the Hebrews is uh, God and the, and the giving of the law. But the law is so, I mean, compared to our temporary structures, is so precise, so detailed, so nailing down every single thing that it's almost by definition hopeless for any human to follow. Within well, I mean, modern and follow it all. Well, follow it all, or I mean, I mean, um, as 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 on, on in the, the the you know, we hold, we can hold a vision, but we can't hold to it, right? In the sense that we're you know we're sort of so we're given all these rules. We're in the desert. We're given all these rules. Okay, <coughs> Levites are mine. This is how I want the place built. Okay. The, the cords have to be these colors, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, to a level of detail that's like almost unfathomable, right? And yet, all these rules are being given to finite creatures who have no hope of following all the rules. Right. So, Which for us is not a problem. Well, you, it's because it's like you do the best you can. Yeah, you do the best you can. We don't have Jesus as our paradigm. Right? We, right? we don't have that for a reason. Right. Right? We have that Yom we, Kippur. We have Yom Kippur. That you, you, know, you do the best you can, you get to the end of it, and you start over hoping to hold better this year to the ideal, and we are human, and therefore and we'll you never and when you realize be able you've gotten, to do it all. When, when you, and when you realize you've gotten to what seems to be the same place, hopefully you will have learned something in between. Exactly, and come to that next moment when it, the opportunity presents itself again, right. that we're changed enough to say no this time. Or yes, this time. Um, so Art Green has a beautiful translation of a Hasidic teaching that I gave you at the end here. Before you begin to pray, cast aside that which limits you and enter the endless world of nothing. In prayer, Turn to God alone and have no thoughts of yourself at all. Nothing but God exists for you. You yourself have ceased to be. The true redemption of the soul can only happen as you step outside the body's limits. This wonderful Hasidic idea of getting past or deeply within, right, the self in order to allow some of those um, boundaries to dissolve and in order to enter fully into uh, relationship with God for the rabbis at some moments means that there isn't me and God in relationship, there's only God, right, that I'm expressive of the one thing that is unfolding as all of it, as all of it. Um, I've given you a second piece that you can look at, uh, this idea of 
uh, of Bamidbar and how it uh, applies to um, our idea of social justice and how we can uh, work on behalf of others. So I offer that for you to take with you. Um, we're going to be making our way through the book of Bamidbar with the uh, next week will be in Parshat Naso, the third uh, hunk of Naso. So um, this is a long book. It's a big, uh, long book. Um, I just want you to remember as we go through this that we're actually picking up our story from Exodus. So I want you to take Leviticus, parenthesize it, and move it out of the way a little bit, right? So the final redaction does put Leviticus in there, so it's still informing our reading the book of Numbers, but Leviticus was inserted between Exodus and Numbers. So we are picking up the story with the book of Numbers that we, that we started in the book of Exodus. 